episode one of the Down to Earth Crypto Podcast. What the fuck is crypto? What the fuck is crypto? That is such a loaded question. It is a loaded question, which is exactly why we are starting with that question. That's a beast, though. That's a beast to tackle. It is, but that's that's why we're doing it. We're here to tackle it. I think it's a really good question to start with because what crypto means to every individual person is totally different depending on who they are. Yeah, exactly. It's You'll get a different answer every time. Every single time. And I think we should dig into that a little bit. Why is it such a different answer every time you ask somebody? Why is there so much? Because I think the problem is in my experience, a lot of the answers you get are very wrong or very false or inaccurate at the very least. I think there's a lot of misinformation that's being spread within the space. It's obviously being spoken about in the news constantly, and it's something that's on social media constantly. And everybody is saying something different, and a lot of people are really wrong, and then they're spreading that, and then that goes to the masses. And that's that leads to a lot of confusion. It leads to a lot of chaos. Yeah, it's a very chaotic space. Yes, it's very chaotic. That's like the best word to sum it up, I would say. Yeah, crypto <laughs> is chaos. All right, yeah. podcast over. Crypto is <laughs> yeah, chaos. We answered it. it. <laughs> yeah, um, no, in all seriousness, I think it leads to the spread of a lot of misinformation about what actually is crypto, what is actually being built, and what that actually means for people. Right. And that's on both sides, I would say. That's the thing that's weird is it's not like, oh, it's just people outside of crypto who don't participate in crypto have all this misinformation. They do. But even within crypto, people who participate heavily and are all in on the crypto space as a whole are being fed all kinds of misinformation, all kinds of... I would say especially within the space, arguably more within the space, there's a lot of inaccurate talk and... It's a really it's a really hard place to navigate as somebody who's an outsider and maybe doesn't know anything about the space. But even as somebody who's in it, it's really it's a hard place to navigate. You will get a lot of different things, a lot of different thought bubbles and a lot of echo chambers within the space. And it's really not a welcoming space. Yeah, it's really confusing and mean. There's a lot of judgment within the space and people are very quick to judge you and make you feel like you're stupid because everyone's trying to be the smartest person in the room and everyone's trying to feel smarter than you, act smarter than you. And I just want to touch on that for a minute because that's something I see a lot, uh, especially with newcomers who are like, you know, new to the crypto space, trying to ask questions and trying to understand better. But even within the space, people who have been in it for a long time, there's so many people throwing around buzzwords and trying to sound smarter than they are when Mm -hmm. it's, if you, if you know what you're talking about, you can actually see pretty clearly that a lot of people don't know what they're talking about, but they sure act like it. They sure act like it. It's like, what does that buzzword even mean? And does the person saying that buzzword even know what it means? The answer is no. (laughs) The answer is usually no. Probably not. Probably not. They probably just picked it up from somebody else on Twitter. And that's a weird place to be. It makes it very difficult again, as someone inside or outside the space to know who is trustworthy and accurate sources to follow. It makes it hard to, you know, understand crypto and what it actually is and all of the different things within it. Like you said, very hard to navigate. Yes. And it's really hard to know who is right. Like I think because everyone's saying different things and there's so many loud voices and oftentimes the voices that are the loudest are the worst voices to be the loudest. They're the most inaccurate or the most misinformed. So I think it's important that we, that's, well, that's why it's, we thought it was really important to create this podcast and start a conversation and create an open dialogue. Yeah. We want people to feel welcomed. We want people to feel like they have a voice and they can, they can say what they want to say. They can ask whatever questions they want to ask. There's no stupid questions. And it's a really complex space right now. There's a lot happening. And so there's no stupid questions. And who, whoever is judging you for your stupid questions is stupid themselves. So don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. And let us know your questions. Yeah. That's, I really, we want to know your questions. We want to keep a super open space for people to ask whatever they want, say whatever they want. And people who are as outside as it gets, people who know nothing about it or people who are super deep into it and they can actually have a space to 
speak about these things and we can bring them into the conversation. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the way to put it because it's crypto is so, it's so new in so many ways. So it is an ongoing conversation. It feels like a, an us versus them type of thing. Right. It feels very cult-like in a lot of ways. It feels like you're either in the space and you're just this heavy maxi, you're just believing it so deep or, or you don't. Right. And you just, you know, nothing about it and you're too stupid to understand it. And that's, that's so ridiculous and so oversimplified. And so I think it's a big reason why we want to just start this now and start this as a community of anybody who's yeah. interested in learning, interested in being a part of the, the conversation. Right. And yeah, let us know. We will be answering questions and responding to comments every single week. Mm-hmm. So let us know what you have to say, because we're going to make an effort every single week to respond. Yeah. Questions, concerns, if you disagree with us, if you don't like something, we'll, we'll speak to that. And so whatever it is. Hundred percent. Let us know. Jump in. Tell Jump us in. any questions, any thoughts, any comments, any input you have whatsoever. Because the goal here is to speak to it in a grounded way, in a neutral way, and to not overcomplicate these things, but to yeah. try to talk about them in a way that's just a little more grounded. Yeah, in, in a way that's digestible, in a way that's understandable, in a way that isn't overwhelming. There's a lot going on. It's a complex space right now, but the way that it's being communicated doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be overcomplicated. And I think that's something that we're trying to solve and something that's really needed. You shouldn't be more confused. I think that's right. that's such a big thing is so many people end up more confused whenever they try to learn, whenever they try to ask questions. And we're here to break it down from the beginning and really start start from the top and work our way through it in a way that is approachable in a way that isn't scary. Because I think if you're able to understand something, you don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to be scared of it. It doesn't have to be this big bad wolf that everyone makes it out to be. Yeah. I think it's really important that people are informed so that they can make their own decisions and make their own choices and make their, form their own opinions of what it is. Exactly. Because um, most people don't understand the fundamentals of where crypto came from, mm-hmm. um, what crypto evolved from, how it, what are its roots? How did it actually yeah. start? That's why, like you said, it's important that we uh, explain these things, but explain in a way that's not overcomplicated. Yeah. It's something that can be understood at a fundamental level. It can be simplified. So yes. that's, that's the goal of what we're trying to do. And without further ado, Let's get into Bitcoin. Yes. Why are we starting with Bitcoin? Because everything that is crypto today began because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the first and everything that is now in crypto is either built on top of Bitcoin or it's built using the same technology that Bitcoin is based on itself. Which is kind of mind-blowing. It just took one to start it all. It started it all. It really it really is the thing that started it all. So I think it's really important that we, we go back all the way back to the beginning and Bitcoin is the beginning. Yes, exactly. If we are able to understand how it all started, we can have a better idea of where things are going. Yeah. And so I think uh, let's talk about Bitcoin. Let's talk about the basics of Bitcoin, what it is and Mm -hmm. how it works and um, where it came from. And the best way to do that is to start with the Bitcoin white paper. The Bitcoin white paper. Yeah, maybe we should start with what's a white paper. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. Did you know? Did you know what a white paper was before Bitcoin? I certainly did not. I actually (laughs) did not know what the purpose of a white paper even was before getting into crypto and reading Bitcoin and eventually other white papers in the crypto industry. But yeah, same. I I didn't know what a white paper was either. And I I assume a lot of people didn't either, especially people who are younger maybe, but I think it's, it's something that really became relevant with Bitcoin. Yeah. Because the white paper is very infamous these days. Yes. Very famous and or infamous. Mm hmm. I choose famous, but many choose infamous. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about what a white paper is. 
It's basically a document that is trying to outline a solution to a problem, usually a technical problem in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, white papers are common in many fields of engineering, and uh, they tend to present solutions or potential solutions to technical problems. And it lays yeah. it out not necessarily in the most technical way, although it's certainly very technical in nature because the problems are technical in nature. But a white paper's goal is to really just give an overview of like, hey, here's a potential solution to yeah. this problem, this engineering problem, this industry problem, this technical problem. Here's a potential way to solve this problem. But, but again, focusing on a technical solution, not so much a philosophical solution, but more of an actual technical solution. Yeah. Although it's interesting because Bitcoin is quite... It gets philosophical, I think, if you read between the lines of the white paper. I think that's also why it's something people really idolize and really look up to because it's something that was written in a way that's very short and sweet, highly technical, but still speaking to fundamental problems that it's trying to solve on a societal level. Yeah, we're going to touch a little bit on specific aspects of the white paper today, mm -hmm. but we'll definitely leave a link to read it in full yourself if you're interested. Uh, it's only seven pages, which may sound like a lot, but it's actually a pretty quick read and it lays mm -hmm. out these problems in a very, very beautiful and concise way. And so, like you said, I think a reason why the Bitcoin white paper is so sort of idolized and has created a sort of standard almost in the crypto industry for how to present new solutions to new problems is mm -hmm. through white papers often. And so, yeah. yeah, something I think maybe people don't know too is Bitcoin has actually been around for a really long time. Mm -hmm. The white paper was written in 2008. 2008. It was published on Halloween 2008. Yeah. And I think, I think that's something that people don't really know because crypto as as an industry has gotten a lot of attention the past the past few years but i think people a lot of people actually don't know that bitcoin has been around for a long time it's been around for over a decade at this point and it started really small it started very grassroots and it slowly built over time and so it's it's not something that just came into the picture really quickly it's not something that was a fad it was something that was slowly built the following and became very popular over, over, for over a decade. Yeah. For over a decade, it's been like around 15 years at this point and mm -hmm. it's only been growing steadily since its inception. But like you said, it wasn't a fad. It wasn't just a come and go type of thing. This is, a it hasn't just emerged out of the past few years. It's, it's been around for a while. The white paper was published in 2008 and Bitcoin launched in 2009. Uh, yeah. It's stood the test of at least some time here, um, <laughs> definitely some time and has a lot of staying power, especially today with how much it's grown. Yeah. Also the paper is anonymous. I think I'm sure a, a fair amount of people who are in the space know this already, but people who aren't maybe don't know that Bitcoin was written fully anonymously. It's something that maybe people are, are maybe surprised by because it's something that is such a big, it has such a far reach these days and it's something that's a household name at this point, but it was written by Satoshi Nakamoto. Yes, which obviously is a pseudonym. There yeah, that's is. a pseudonym. That's not a real name. Yeah, and so we don't actually know who the person or group of people yeah. was that actually introduced this white paper and this protocol to the world. Mm -hmm. And still no, and I, I think that's interesting because there's not many things these days anymore that is without without clout, without you know having the voices be known and voices being loud and really trying to become popular and beco becoming famous, trying to get a lot of attention, and this is not like that. This is not like that at all. And and it's a criticism even I've seen. Uh, some people believe the fact that it's anonymous lends to some people's idea of crypto or Bitcoin even being a scam or being, you know, mm -hmm. fraudulent. But yeah. I think the counter argument to that is actually the fact that it's anonymous lends to how powerful of a protocol it actually is. Because again, yeah. when you actually get into the fundamentals and you understand how it works, 
They're not letting any kind of reputation speak for themselves. They're letting the actual work speak for itself. They're letting the actual technology, the actual solutions that they've provided speak for itself. And so I would say the counter argument to it being, you know, potentially a problem, it's actually a strength. And so, yeah, I think that's a really important point to bring up and, um, Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into the legendary white paper. It is. It is legendary. I think maybe something to to speak about it is it it kind of crypto in general kind of has a cult following in a lot of ways, especially if you're an outsider. It can feel kind of like it's a cult because everyone's obsessed with it and everyone is thinks it's the coolest thing. And And I would say the white paper is kind of a big part of that. It's a big part of the the myth and the legend and the things that people think about as making it so magical, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just a white paper. So I think it's, there's, that's maybe another reason why people on the outside are so confused because it's a technical paper. And so maybe to them, it's not this magical unicorn like it is to other people because they might not understand it. And so I think it's just, it's important that we start here. It's important that we, we begin here. Agreed. And one thing I would add to that is that so many of the technologies that have emerged out of Bitcoin as a first setting the example are taken for granted by people that are currently deep in crypto. Mm-hmm. At the time in 2008, when it was first introduced, there was yeah. nothing. Nothing like it before. Bitcoin certainly used certain protocols and certain ideas from other attempted implementations before it, but nothing had combined these ideas into a truly Full picture. Full picture the way that Bitcoin did. Yeah. So <laughs> again, there's so much lead to it, but let's let's just dive into it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I actually have the white paper here in front of me. I think the best mm-hmm. place to start is to actually go ahead and read the abstract, which is just the summary of the paper that is at the beginning of the paper. And Mm -hmm. I think we should go through it um, and just kind of discuss it as we go through it, because it honestly is a really good starting point and really lays out the foundation of what Bitcoin is trying to do and how it's trying to do it. Yeah, I think it lays out really well the conceptual idea, which I think is an important part that people need to understand is like what conceptually is happening and what does that mean on a practical level? All right. Well, let me go ahead and start reading a little bit here. Uh, The white paper is titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Okay. And of course, authored by the legendary Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever you are. So the abstract starts, a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. That's a big first statement. That's a big first statement. There's a lot to unpack there. There is. I think really what this statement is starting to get into is like, what is Bitcoin actually trying to do? What is it actually trying to solve as a technology? Because again, the white paper is a solution to a technical problem. So what is the problem that it's trying to solve? And I think this first sentence is really laying that out. Yeah. To put it in different words, I would say what it's trying to solve is trying to find a way to send money via the internet without going through a third party. Like that's a more basic way to say it. Yeah. So let's take it back a step further, actually, because I think let's look at the system, traditional systems as it exists today. So when you send money to somebody for, you know, something on the internet. If you're buying something, if you're selling something, if you want to send money to somebody else's account. Right. We use financial institutions to facilitate all of that. And and what are financial institutions? Well, basically banks, credit card companies, even the government in a lot of cases, but Mm -hmm. whatever third party, external third party, because it rarely happens that you're able to just directly send somebody some money. And so maybe you're thinking, oh, what about Venmo or something? It's like, nope, that's still the third party. You're not directly sending somebody money ever, really. Right. One example that I think really lays this out clearly in a metaphorical way is imagine you're at a garage sale and Mm -hmm. you want to pay somebody in exchange for something you're buying at that garage sale. Mm -hmm. That's obviously peer to peer. It's just in person. There's no third party or no middleman that you're going through to facilitate that transaction. You're simply handing the cash over to the other person, but there's certainly not a peer to peer way to do that over the internet. 
Certainly, because everything that happens over the internet today is facilitated through largely credit cards. Right. That's the biggest way of being able to do any sort of transaction. Certainly. Bank accounts. And so I think that puts in better context what Bitcoin is actually trying to solve. Bitcoin's trying to create a system where we can actually send money in a peer-to-peer way over the internet, just like we do when we're just paying cash in person to another person for something like at a garage sale. Right. Another another way to think about peer-to-peer is directly. Right. It's just one person sending it directly to the other person. Exactly. No third parties, no middlemen. So I think, again, just to read that one more time, a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. That's basically setting up, okay, how is Bitcoin going to facilitate that? Yeah, that is the main conceptual problem and idea that Bitcoin is solving. So if we keep reading, it's going to say next, Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. We propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer network. All right, let's unpack that too. Yeah, let's break that down. Probably start with double spending. Double spending. What is double spending? What is that? The way I would explain what double spending is, let's use our bank example again. If I'm sending you $10 through the bank accounts, I'm sending $10 from my bank account to your bank account. The bank is in charge of decreasing my account balance by $10 and increasing your account balance by $10. Right. And that finalizes that transaction. Double spending would take place if the bank increased your balance by $10 because I was sending you $10, but failed to actually decrease my bank account by $10. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I sent you $10. So it increased your balance by $10, but I never lost my $10. And so now there's basically an extra $10 in the system Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be there. That's essentially what double spending is. Yeah. It's essentially falsifying transactions. So it's trying to find a way to send money in a way that has no third party, but is still done accurately. Right. And so to read that sentence again, digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. And so what this is saying is the peer-to-peer aspect of this network doesn't work if we have to trust some third-party middleman. Mm -hmm. These transactions, it's basically meaningless if we aren't able to actually do it in a way that is fully direct one person directly to the other person. Right. And be able to do that in a verifiable way that prevents double spending. Right. Accurate. Exactly. So digital signatures. What are digital signatures? That's where we get into kind of an interesting part of of Bitcoin and how it works. Digital signatures is a subset of the category of cryptography. Okay. Cryptography. Cryptography. Let's wait, let's take a pause for a second because I think that gets into the name crypto. I think maybe there's there's some people out there that don't know that the name crypto actually comes from somewhere. Cryptocurrency, crypto technology, it actually comes from cryptography. Yes. It come it comes from math. Yeah, that's very true. Cryptography essentially is the mathematical study of ways to make data secret. Encrypt something. Encrypt something, right. Mm -hmm. And in order to facilitate how Bitcoin works, at least at a broad level, what you need to understand right now is that cryptography is a huge part of that. And these digital signatures, this encryption methods are a huge part of how Bitcoin actually works. It's fundamental to how we're able to facilitate this, which is why it's so popularly known as crypto. Right. Because all of the technologies that have built on Bitcoin or evolved from Bitcoin also make heavy, heavy use of cryptography. It's just, like you said, fundamental. It's critical to the function of these things. And so mm-hmm. that is where we actually get the name crypto for yeah. the industry as a whole. It actually comes from the heavy reliance on cryptography and that mathematical field of study, basically. Yeah. Basically, long story short, it comes from math. It comes from math. And so now it's just a matter of understanding how that math is applied. Yeah, exactly. So if we go ahead and read again, 
Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. We propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer network. So again, the solution they are providing is using cryptography to prevent double spending while still allowing people to transact directly with each other over the internet. Mm -hmm. Digital signatures, to put a little more context around what that means, it's basically the idea of verifying that I, in fact, am the one sending that transaction and I have valid access to send the transaction of my Bitcoin to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So a digital signature, another way to put it is a digital signature is my way of signing the transaction or sending the transaction in a way that other people can verify I am in fact the one that sent that transaction and not someone else. Someone else isn't trying to access my Bitcoin, okay? Mm-hmm. That's basically what a digital signature is. Okay. Again, it's you- a verification process. Yes, that's a good way to put it. It's a verification process so that everyone can help prevent double spending by knowing who is actually trying to send the transaction, okay? Yeah. So if we keep reading, the network timestamps transactions by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof-of-work, forming a record that cannot be changed without redoing the proof-of-work. Okay. There's a lot. That's where we get into a lot of technicals. (laughs) Yes. What's the first thing that jumps out at you there? The first thing that jumps out to me is hashing. Okay. I think that's a lot of people don't know what that is, and I think hash is probably the biggest question mark that people get confused about. Sure. Hashing actually comes back to cryptography too. That's another subset of cryptography, this mathematical study of, you know, ways to manipulate data in a way that makes it secret, basically. Mm -hmm. Encryption, the idea of encryption, just to compare, encryption is I have a secret key that I encrypt data with so that if you also have the key, you can decrypt the data back into its original format. And that's good if I want to send you a secret message that allows you to then read the message. Hashing is a little bit different. Hashing is where you actually manipulate data into a new format Mm -hmm. that is unique, okay? So every single different input data that I give will give a unique output if you hash it, okay? But hashes are always the same number of characters long. Mm -hmm. And by characters, I mean like letters and numbers, For example, an SHA-256 hash, okay? That's just a name of a specific kind of hash that's actually used commonly in crypto and in Bitcoin and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's always going to return a fixed length output no matter what input you put in. But what's so interesting is every single output is unique to that input. So that's what keeps it secure. That's what keeps it secure. If I change the input even by one letter or one number or just whatever my input, if my input is testing, okay, mm-hmm. if I change that by adding a period at the end of testing, it's going to give a different hash output than the original testing with no period, okay? Okay. Basically, hashing is a one-way function that turns any unique input into a unique output. All right, so let's read the sentence one more time, maybe? Sure. The network timestamps transactions by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof-of-work, forming a record that cannot be changed without redoing the proof-of-work. So just to take a pause real quick, something that just occurred to me is let's define network. I think that's maybe something that it's a broad term, and so if you're unaware, it's network means computers. Yes. It means a network of computers all working together. Yes. In this context, a network is computers talking to each other over the internet. Mm -hmm. And so the Bitcoin network is a network of computers working together to essentially facilitate this peer-to-peer network. Yeah. Through hashing as a way to verify that everything is accurate. There's no double spending. There's no false transactions. That's what's being used. Exactly. So when it says the network timestamps transactions by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof of work, okay, that means these computers are taking in the transactions Like if I'm trying to send you Bitcoin, that's a transaction. Mm -hmm. These computers are taking that in along with all the other transactions and hashing them so that all the computers can agree that, okay, this was the order that the transactions took place in and prevent double spending from occurring. Right. So what's meant by proof of work? That is where the computer is using these hashes essentially to 
prove that it has made a valid block of transactions, basically a valid batch of transactions. Okay. Through hashing. Through hashing. So proof of work is facilitated through the hashing. Yes. Basically, the work means that the computer is doing a bunch of hashes until it gets the hash right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the work. The work is the computer hashing over and over again the transactions until it gets the right output. Other computers on the network can then agree that, yes, you got the right output. Okay. It's working until it gets it right, basically. Exactly. It's guessing until it gets it right. Okay. So all of these computers are coming together and they're all working together. And with every verified transaction that happens on each individual computer, that builds a chain. Yes. Essentially, a the chain comes from a chain of blocks, and that's where we get the word blockchain. Okay. Each block has a batch of transactions in it, and each mm-hmm. block of transactions gets chained with the next block of transactions. So they're all tied together. They're all tied together. And the proof of work is essentially the computers trying to create the next block on the chain. So they're running these hashes and guessing until they get the right combination, basically, of transactions in a way that proves, hey, I did this correctly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that creates the next block in the chain. Right. So the only way to form a new block is to do it right. Exactly. To do it right. All right. What's next? The longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that it came from the largest pool of CPU power. All right. CPU power. So that is related to the proof of work, okay? Again, computers are actually the things doing this proof of work. Right. Humans set up the computers to run on this network, but once the computer is running, the human doesn't need to do anything more. It just goes. It just goes. The computer is doing the work, the guess hashing basically to prove its work. And so what is meant by CPU power? CPU power is basically computational power. So some computers are stronger than others, but you could also have many computers working at the same time, all guessing at the same time. And it's more likely that one of them is going to get the right answer quicker. Because it has more power. Exactly. More power comes from more computers working on it simultaneously. And so what this is saying is that the longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that it came from the largest pool of CPU power. Because the chain is built the quickest with the most CPU power, that's going to create the longest chain because the more computers that agree on it, the faster that chain is going to be built. Mm -hmm. So the next sentence says, as long as a majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that are not cooperating to attack the network, they'll generate the longest chain and outpace attackers. So that puts a little more context in this idea of the longest chain coming from the largest CPU power or the most computers. Mm -hmm. That will always be the most accurate. Exactly. Wherever the most CPU power is working on the chain, Mm -hmm. that is going to create the longest chain. And the longest chain is going to be the chain that all the other computers then decide to work on. Okay. I think this is where the idea of the 51% rule comes in. That's something that's spoken about a lot in in crypto, I think. So let's talk about that for a sec. Sure. I guess for starters, let's talk about what is the 51% rule for those that haven't heard of it. It's directly related to this idea of the longest chain that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. The 51% rule basically says that if someone is trying to create fraud on the network. Falsify transactions. Right. They have to control at minimum more than 50% of the computational power. Because the longest chain is the essentially proof, right? The longest chain of blocks is the chain that everyone agrees is valid. And so the only way to create the longest chain, but do it in a way that's false or inaccurate, is if you control over half of the computational power. So you have to be running at least 51% of the computers on the network in order to... In order to get the opportunity to falsify transactions. Exactly, exactly. And so that's what the 51% rule is speaking to. Basically meaning you can always trust the longest chain as long as 51% of it is not controlled by just one entity. Very well said. And so to put that in a little bit more practical context, it costs a lot of money to buy all of the computational equipment that you need to take 51% or more of the computational power on the network. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very difficult for any one entity to create enough computers and run them on enough energy 
to be able to take control of the computational power on the network and be able to falsify certain transactions. That's why it's called the 51% rule or the 51% attack, because the only way that the attack can be valid is if at least 51% of the computers are all colluding to falsify the network. Yeah. And again, that's difficult to do. Right. In a practical sense, that's obviously very difficult to do. Especially the more that the network grows and the more people participate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so just to go ahead and finish out this abstract, the last bit reads, the network itself requires minimal structure. Messages are broadcast on a best effort basis and nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the longest proof of work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. Okay, and that's actually the end of the abstract. All right. So let's go ahead. What jumps out at you about that that last bit there? I think something really important is nodes can leave and rejoin at will. Yeah. Let's maybe let's break that down for a sec. Sure. So a node in this context is just a computer running the software to run the network. Participating in the network. Exactly. And any node can leave at any time and then rejoin later. And basically what they will do is they'll download all the blocks that they missed while they were gone, the blocks that created the longest chain, and then they'll just start working on the next block. And so if I'm running a a node on the network, I can turn my computer off for a few days Mm -hmm. and turn it back on and it will simply pick back up. It'll pick back up. It'll pick back up exactly where the network is at currently, not where I left off. Mm-hmm. It'll download where the network is at currently, and then it'll start working on the newest block. Yeah. I think that's, it's important to talk about that, but also speak to you can fully leave. It's, it's not something that, you know, you're locked into anything. It's something that you can start and stop as you wish. Exactly. That is a really important piece, especially, again, in the context of Bitcoin trying to solve the problem of how do we create this network without a centralized authority? Because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the case of a centralized third party or centralized authority that is maintaining the network, if that third party has any issues or any downtime, the network is down. Yeah. But in this case, the idea of decentralized comes in. Anyone anywhere in the world can be running nodes on the network on their computers. At any point in time. At any point in time. And any of them can, if they need to do maintenance, let's say, or upgrade their computer, they can turn their node off temporarily. The rest of everyone else in the world is still running their nodes. And so the network keeps running. It's not contingent on any one person to keep it running. As long as there are nodes running the network continues to run. Mm-hmm. Love that. It's a very cool thing because the importance of people being able to come and go as they wish, being able to join and participate in running the network and then turn it off anytime they want, that's really important because it maintains the freedom of every individual person to mm-hmm. participate how they want, but it also maintains the decentralization of this network so that yeah. it's not dependent on any given centralized authority. All right, that is... The abstract, we wanted to dive deep into the abstract specifically because it's a really good overview of conceptually what Bitcoin is trying to do and what it wants to do at a very high level, a more broad level. And so I think it was important that we were starting from that point. I agree. So where do you want to go from here? I kind of want to try to summarize everything that we just talked about in that abstract. Okay. Okay. I'm going to do the best summary that I can. Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. For starters... The problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve is finding a way to send money on the internet directly to another party without going through a trusted third party. Yes. Actually, to stop you there for a second, I think something that is also really well known and important in the crypto space is something called trustless. Mm. And it's because of this idea of not having to trust a third party, not having to trust somebody else in order to facilitate things, verify things, make sure that everything is accurate. There's no false transactions. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of where the idea comes from, is being able to facilitate everything in a way that is trustless. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up because it is true. Running on Bitcoin, you are not trusting any third party to transfer the money properly. Mm -hmm. The only thing that you have to trust is that there isn't any attacker that has over 50% control of the computational power, which again, as we discussed earlier, is very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Trustful means trusting a centralized party, trusting the bank. Mm -hmm. Trustless means you don't actually have to trust anyone because it's based on math. Mm -hmm. 
You can't trust humans. Yes. But you can trust math. Exactly. Especially in the context of Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is something that is fully publicly viewable. 100%. So all the transactions are known and it's fully publicly accessible to know who has the most power, basically. And you will, there's always a way to know if 51% is being taken over. Yeah. There's always a way to know that. Definitely. So I think that's something that is an important part is like the weakness in this is the 51% rule essentially is that's how it's able to be taken over. But a strength to that kind of the other opposite end of that is that it's always publicly viewable. So you can always be aware if 51% does get taken over by one single entity. Very true. I think something that is maybe taken for granted is the fact that it's publicly viewable. Yeah, I think people forget or they also maybe don't know how to publicly view it. And that's something that I want to talk about a little bit just to dive into that because it's, I think in the crypto industry commonly understood that blockchains are public and transparent and you can see all of the transactions taking place on it, but how is it actually available? Right, right. Well, for starters, the thing that you have to understand is these nodes And by nodes, again, we're talking about computers that are running the software to participate in the network. Mm -hmm. Participate in Bitcoin. Right. When you start up a new node, it is actually going to download the full history of all the blocks on the blockchain, where each block contains all of the transactions that have taken place. It's going to download that full history from all of the other nodes that are currently running on the network. Mm -hmm. And in that sense it is publicly viewable because all of those other nodes make that history fully available. So then when I start up a brand new node on my computer, it will download all of the blocks from 2009 when Bitcoin first started. Mm -hmm. It will download all of those blocks onto my computer and it needs all of those blocks in order to start working on the proof of work for the next block in order to actually participate in validating the network like the other computers are. That's again one of the beautiful things about the public availability is all of these computers are essentially agreeing to share all of their work because that's the way they actually make money from mining the nodes is they need to share this information with everyone else. And that's how you actually access the information on a technical level. When you start a new node on the network on your computer, it will actually download all of the blocks with all of the transactions. Mm -hmm. And then you can therefore view all the transactions that have taken place on Bitcoin's blockchain within that node. Yeah. Now, not everyone has the technical equipment or capability or knowledge necessarily to run their own Bitcoin node to validate all of these transactions and see all of the public transactions on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of tools out there. You can actually request information from other nodes. A lot of people will make their nodes available on the internet for other people to request data from those nodes without having to run their own node. Okay. And so that's another way that this is publicly available, even to people that don't Mm -hmm. run their own node. You can request data from other nodes to see what kind of transactions are on the blockchain. Yeah. Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. It makes sense. I will say you did jump into talking about paying Mm. for gas fees and stuff. So maybe we should, before we give like the summary, because we can go back and like kind of do the summary because that's very conceptual, but more practically, how is this actually implemented with paying and incentives? Right. I think a good way to put this in context, I think you bring up a very good point and a good way to put this point in context is why would I actually want to run a node? It sounds like a Mm -hmm. lot of work to put my computer through and for what purpose, right? Right. Don't worry. Satoshi thought about these things. He did. (laughs) He thought about how do we incentivize people to participate in validating the network by running these nodes. There's actually a whole section on the white paper that's talking about incentives. Exactly. You get paid in Bitcoin to run a node. And this has become known as Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. A minor node is it's the same exact thing as a node. And so a mining node just means you have a computer that is... That's participating in the system, in the network as a whole, Bitcoin as a whole. Exactly. And part of that participation is working on proving the work for the next block in the blockchain, always. Mm -hmm. It's always working on the next block and the next block and the next block. Here's where it gets cool. If your computer, if your node successfully creates the next block... Mm -hmm. It broadcasts that to the rest of the nodes on the network and says, hey, I found the answer, right? Mm -hmm. And the other nodes verify your work and they say, oh, yes, 
it looks like they got it. Assuming your computer did it properly, they say, oh yes, it looks like you got the right answer. So that is the next block and we'll start working on the block that comes after that. But as a reward for creating that block, your computer gets what's called gas fees. Mm-hmm. Gas fees come from the actual transactions that are created within that block, okay? And the transactions actually come from users. So let's say I'm a user and I'm sending you, you know, one Bitcoin, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. I am going to send my transaction to one of these nodes on the network, but I'm actually going to send a little more than one Bitcoin. I'm going to send you one Bitcoin and mm-hmm. I'm going to give them a little bit of Bitcoin as a fee for them to take, basically as a thank you for doing the work on my transaction to mm-hmm. include it in the next block. As a reward. As a reward for verifying the transaction, facilitating the transaction. That's right. Essentially, the game that you are playing when you're running a Bitcoin miner on your computer and mining node on your computer is if you successfully mine the next block, you get to keep all of the gas fees that everyone else was sending you to include their transactions in the block. Mm-hmm. And this is where it actually gets very free market, I would say, too, because mm-hmm. there's not a set gas price. Gas fees are free market. It's like an auction, right? Mm -hmm. The higher gas fees that I'm willing to pay, the more likely it is that miners will include it in the next block because they're going to include the transactions with the highest gas fees. And they can Mm -hmm. only include so many transactions in the next block. And so they're always going to take my transaction if I am paying the highest gas fees. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it becomes a free market where, first of all, the incentivization for miners to run a mining node in the first place is that they will get to keep the gas fees that us as the participants sending Bitcoin amongst one another are basically giving them as a reward. Number two, the other interesting thing is that, well, how does this Bitcoin get created in the first place? Where does Bitcoin even come from? Right. And that's actually a really interesting part of the incentive mechanism as well. New Bitcoin is created every single time a new block is created. And that is also awarded to the node that successfully mines the next block. Mm -hmm. So two fees, basically, just to back up a little bit. You get a fee for mining, basically participating in the network and then successfully verifying a transaction. And you get paid for transaction fees as somebody else who wants to facilitate a person-to-person transaction. Yes. Those are the two main ways of making money. Yep. Just to summarize that again, the first is new Bitcoin that is created and granted to you for successfully mining the block. Mm -hmm. The second is the gas fees that are paid by the people sending you the transactions. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about that first one, though, the amount of that reward actually cuts in half every couple of years. Mm -hmm. So that was determined from the beginning. That was determined. That is how Bitcoin was set up from the beginning. That is essentially how new Bitcoin enters into the system in the first place. The Mm -hmm. very first block of Bitcoin that was mined, that was the first time Bitcoin even entered the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. And every single block after that, more Bitcoin has been created and continues to be created. But eventually we'll get to a point where no more Bitcoin will be created and given to the miners creating the new blocks. Mm -hmm. Eventually we will have a flat supply of Bitcoin in the ecosystem and no more will be created beyond that. Right. So that incentive structure will go away, but paying gas fees will never go away. Exactly. Exactly. So there will always be an incentive for miners to participate in the network. They will always get paid gas fees. Mm -hmm. The amount of that reward of brand new Bitcoin will decrease over time, but they will always get to collect the gas fees from Mm -hmm. the transactions that people are sending in the new block. Yeah. I just wanted to make that clear because it's actually a very interesting part about how Bitcoin works. It's deflationary. Right. That maybe seems at the surface as a negative thing that over time and it decreases. But as you said, that actually creates deflationary conditions. We are all too familiar, I think, these days with inflation (laughs) and the problems with inflation. Especially if you're in the U.S. these days. (laughs) And there is actually some backstory and some interesting Easter eggs that we can get into later about how Bitcoin was created partly to curb inflation and create a deflationary money system. Yeah. At the end of this podcast, we will be talking about Easter eggs for anybody interested. Yeah. But at least for right now, it's important to understand that Bitcoin actually is deflationary. There will be a max supply of Bitcoin. And once it hits that max supply, no more Bitcoin will be created in the ecosystem. Yeah. So let's let's compare that a little bit to how things work today. Yeah. Well, today, uh, 
we print money and we just keep printing more <laughs> dollar bills. Which the reason that that causes inflation is because every single time it prints money, that devalues the money that's already in circulation. That's exactly right. If I have $5 and there's only $10 in the world, I have half the money in the world. Mm-hmm. But then if the government prints 10 more dollars, now I have $5 and there's $20 in the world. So the value of my money went from half of the money in the world to a fourth of the money in the world. So it's only half as valuable as it was. Exactly. And that is exactly what inflation does. As governments continue to print more money, it devalues the money that people have currently. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin will not do that to you. Bitcoin does not do that. It is deflationary. It will eventually hit a point where there will be no more Bitcoin being created in the system. And even as we get closer to that point, the amount of Bitcoin being created is getting less and less and less. Mm -hmm. And what that does is actually create a store of value where your money will not decrease in value because there will not be more money being printed. It will not decrease in value because of inflation. Right. That will never happen. Exactly. I think that's an important point to understand is potentially the value. Of course, the value can fluctuate based off of what societally is accepted and deemed as valuable but it will never decrease because of inflation. Exactly. So well said. I think uh, let me circle all the way back and try to do my summary again. Yeah, let's circle all the way back. I think those were some really good points that we went over, but I'm going to give it my best shot to just give the most quick and concise summary of how Bitcoin works as I can. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. So again, this problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve is creating a way to have direct transactions peer-to-peer from me to you online without having to go through something like a bank or a credit card company or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And the way that Bitcoin is proposing to do that is through a few different things. Number one, we use cryptography to basically create this chain of blocks of transactions, a verifiable chain because of the cryptography where you can verify that every block comes after the block before it and is directly connected to the block before it. So that you can't falsify transactions. Exactly. And we create a system where anyone can work on the next block in that blockchain by running a computer program, essentially, and connecting to all of the other computers running that computer program. Mm -hmm. Everyone is incentivized to run those computer programs because they can actually get more Bitcoin as a reward for mining the next block, for proving their work on the next block. Mm -hmm. And then as each block gets created, that validates all of the transactions that took place and the nodes are able to prevent double spending by essentially creating a chain of these blocks together. A chain of verifiable transactions. Right. A chain of verifiable transactions where we can actually verify the exact order in which the transactions took place Mm -hmm. and therefore prevent double spending. Okay, it prevents me from sending you $10 and then sending someone else $10 too when I only had $10 in my bank account. So we are preventing double spending by creating this verifiable chain of transactions in a verifiable order and all of the nodes on the network are agreeing on what the correct order of transactions are by all agreeing on let's use the longest chain that's been created. Mm -hmm. Because everyone's trying to create chains at the same time But whatever person creates the longest chain, all the other nodes are going to want to work on that longest chain. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's the system of incentives where everyone is incentivized to participate because they get rewards of more Bitcoin by creating new blocks in the blockchain. And it becomes a publicly available ledger of all the transactions that have taken place because anyone can also run their own node or connect to one of the nodes that is currently running on the network to verify the order of transactions on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And something just to sum up at the end as well is that it is fully free market because of everything you just said, but also because you have full entry and exit conditions. You can fully participate, come and go as you please, fully participate as much or as little as you want, and it's still able to withhold its integrity. That's right. That was my, my best best shot at it. <laughs> it was a little shaky, but not bad. Not bad. Yeah. I think it was good. All right. All right. Um, I think one more thing that I kind of want to talk about, just so people can start to understand how do I actually participate in Bitcoin, is mm-hmm. what's become known as wallets, crypto wallets, right? Yes. Let's talk about that. That's a big point. A wallet 
it's a questionable term because it's not exactly the same as well. It's the way we think about it in like a, in a literal sense. In a literal sense, that's right. Yeah. But this comes back to the cryptography that we were talking about before. How do I actually hold Bitcoin on the blockchain and send it to other people on the blockchain and receive it on the blockchain? How do I actually participate in this? Not necessarily running a node to mine the network, mm -hmm. but actually just as someone who wants to hold Bitcoin and transact with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The first thing you're going to do is create a Bitcoin wallet. And without getting into details, because there's a lot of different software out there to create Bitcoin wallets for you. But the basic idea is I create a cryptographic key pair. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's what's known as a public key and a private key. And the private key is directly connected to the public key. But the private key is like a password. Okay. The private key I want to keep secret because that's how I prove my access to my Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The public key is kind of like the wallet where your Bitcoin is stored. Everyone agrees, okay, your Bitcoin is stored at your public key address. Okay. But the private key, again, is how I control the access to my Bitcoin. Nobody can send my Bitcoin for me unless I verify it with my private key. So that's the overview of public keys and private keys. And let's use an example. Let's say I want to send you a Bitcoin. Basically, what I'm going to do is send a transaction to one of the nodes on the network or on my own node, I can run this transaction. Mm -hmm. And I sign a message. And by sign, this is a cryptographic technique. This is again where I encrypt something. I sign a message with my private key that says, hey, I want to send you one Bitcoin to your public key. So you use your private key as a way to sign it. Exactly. I use it as a way to sign it cryptographically. Mm -hmm. What's really cool about how these keys work is when I send that transaction to one of the nodes on the network, the node is able to read the signature of that and see that it came from the private key that is associated with my public key. But it can't actually read my private key. Mm -hmm. So the way the actual signature works is I'm not exposing my private key but cryptographically, it can verify that my private key signed it. Yeah. So that's how it's able to stay fully anonymous and fully private every step of the way. And where the term trustless comes from, because again, it's not having to be done in a way where you trust a certain bank or a certain company. Everyone is complete strangers and you only know what is publicly available. And the only thing that's publicly available is the public key, which isn't necessarily even associated with your identity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be. Right. That's where the trustless idea comes from. Exactly. When I send that transaction to one of the minor nodes that is participating in the network, it's able to verify that I am in fact the one sending it because I've signed it with my private key. It doesn't get to see my private key. Right. It gets to see that I signed it right. with my private key. And that's how it verifies that someone else isn't trying to send my Bitcoin. You know, that's how right. the node is able to verify that I am, in fact, the one sending it. Right. Now, of course, the key part of that is that you have to keep your private key extremely safe. Mm -hmm. Because if someone else does get a hold of your private key, then they have access to all of your Bitcoin that's in your wallet. Mm -hmm. That's the basic idea of how cryptography comes into the wallets themselves. Or another way to think of it is the accounts, right? My Bitcoin account is a public key and private key. And the private key is how you actually verify transactions using that public key. In a way that's fully private, but still able to verify the transactions publicly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Super important. Super important part of how you actually participate in Bitcoin without necessarily running a mining node yourself. Right. What if I want to have Bitcoin, but I'm not interested in mining Bitcoin? Well, that would be exactly how you create mm -hmm. a new public key and private key and you purchase Bitcoin and have it sent to your account and then you control access to that with your private key. Yeah. So that's the basic summary. Really, really good summary. I think it was a good first start. Let us know what you guys think. Let us let us know your thoughts, your questions. This is part one. We wanted to do the foundation and really just start all the way from the beginning. Really start from square one and go, hey, what are the fundamentals of this? Part two will be, why is this important? Why does this matter if we have banks? Why should I give a shit? Why should I care? That's, that's where we will be going next. That's right. And so I know part one is pretty technical, although we've tried to, again, explain this in a way that hopefully makes a lot more sense. But mm -hmm. if you have any questions at all, or if you have any thoughts or input, or even if you think we got something wrong, definitely let us know. We didn't. 
(laughs) (laughs) Definitely let us know. Drop, you know, a comment and you can join in the Discord or something as well and message us there. But let us know what else you want to talk about. We will obviously be covering a lot of other topics within all all the things crypto moving forward. Our next macro topic after Bitcoin is Ethereum. But let us know what you want to hear. What you what do you want us to talk about? What questions you want to have? We will respond to all of them. All of them. Like we said originally, we will discuss all of these things and there are no stupid questions. No stupid questions. We want to keep a super open dialogue and we want it to be super welcoming and not confusing, not weird, not intimidating. So let us know what you want to hear. We will listen. We hear you. We hear you and we want to speak to all these things on all levels. Yeah. Just let us know. Till next time. Until next time. Down to earth crypto. Let's go. Let's go. Bye. Bye. (laughs) We done? Yeah.